Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen, and if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guests today are Scott Whittle and Mike Lanzone of Project Terra and Cellular Tracking Technologies. Scott is a bird expert and author. His passion for the natural world has led to co-authoring The Warbler Guide, The Warbler Guide app, and contributing to the Bird Genie Bird Song Identification app. Mike is a research biologist turned technologist and is the founder and CEO of CTT, Cellular Tracking Technologies. They're a leading manufacturer and innovator of wildlife trackers using various cellular, satellite, and radio technologies. We start off discussing CTT and their interesting origin story, which was attempting to identify if eastern golden eagles would be impacted by proposed wind power facilities. CTT has advanced the technology significantly over the years, creating what they call the Internet of Wildlife, allowing larger animals like eagles to be repeaters of data for smaller songbirds, overcoming limitations of how large a systems that these birds can carry. We also discuss a few of CTT's conservation success stories, such as Project Snowstorm, which tracks snowy owls. Our primary topic today is an exciting new project called Terra. Terra intends to dramatically expand wildlife tracking in the form of a system that you can place on your own property. Terra is intended to help people connect with nature while simultaneously filling in crucial gaps in wildlife data, such as birdsong variations, details about migratory flight paths, and even information about other animal vocalizations, such as cicadas, crickets, and frogs. Terra expects to use nocturnal flight calls, or NFCs, to help identify migratory bird paths and volumes, so we spend some time talking about NFCs and how important these unique, often single-note calls are. Terra is in late-stage development and has launched a Kickstarter to help get it over the finish line. We discuss how Terra works, the technology inside, what a corresponding app might look like, privacy, and speculate on the plethora of potential research topics that will result from a network of Terra devices. If you're interested in Terra, please check out the Kickstarter, which ends July 1st. We discuss exactly what a Kickstarter is in the show, but the short story is a Kickstarter is basically how new ideas such as Terra get community funding and are thus critically important for the success of projects such as this. And by backing projects on Kickstarter, you get perks to help make it worth your while. So without further delay, Mike Lenzone and Scott Whittle. Okay, Mike and Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having us. So I'm really excited to talk to you. I first learned about cellular tracking technologies uh, through the ABA podcast a couple of years ago and have always wanted to talk to you. And now I had a really good excuse to reach out. You have a new product coming called Terra. We're going to talk a lot about that, but maybe before we do that, perhaps a little bit of background about cellular tracking technologies, what that is, how long you've been around, what you do with that. Sure. Yeah. So so CTT stands for Cellular Tracking Technologies, as you said. And, you know, originally we named ourselves that because we made the first devices for wildlife that had cellular technology. So basically what that means is, you know, when an animal collects GPS data, it sends that data um, over the cell network. And so uh, back in, uh, actually it was 2006, we had a project um, back then. I, I worked for Carnegie Museum of Natural History. And we had a problem which, you know, we were tracking golden eagles and using the existing technology 
Uh, we were only collecting about eight GPS points a day and trying to send them over the Argo satellite. And, you know, really the back then it was, if, if you remember, it was, this was when wind power was just kind of starting up. Um, so a lot of places hadn't had wind turbines um, even installed yet, especially in you know, parts of West Virginia and Pennsylvania. And so we really had a, a question about Eastern Golden Eagles and their use of the ridges. So, you know, the use of the, the Argos technology really wasn't giving us the data that we wanted. Um, we, we really wanted to see flight points, birds using the ridges so we could look and see if there was any potential issues with wind turbines and if there was any way that we could actually learn more about how Golden Eagles were using those ridges to help inform and, and guide uh, wind power development. You know, that's kind of how we started down this track. And, you know, we, at that point, I'm a biologist. Uh, <laughs> and so designing something, you know, wasn't my first uh, choice of, of what to do. But I did at the time, I, I ran the bioacoustics and biomonitoring lab at the museum. And so most of my other work was in audio recording, analyzing and creating hardware uh, to record flight call notes, which uh, birds make during migration. And so I, I had a whole lab set up of soldering irons and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, when we kind of struck out, you know, we tried to get other people to help us down this path. And we just, you know, I worked for a museum and, you know, we get back things from engineering firms. Oh, for $50,000 uh, retainer, we can help you develop this technology. And remember, you know, at this point in time, no one had ever sent GPS data over the cell network. This was before the first iPhone. And so this was, you know, it kind of seems crazy now, you know, with everything we're doing with, with cell phones, but that was you know, a long time ago. So during one of our meetings, uh, one of our collaborators was like, well, you know, we're going to have to figure something out. And I'm like, I'm just going to make it myself. And he kind of chuckled. He's like, let me know when you do that. For years, I had an idea of making a transmitter uh, using a cell phone. All my friends and family, every time they retired their old flip phones, they give them to me. And so I'd had a whole drawer of phones. I opened up that drawer got to work, um, built the first you know, prototype device, and uh, then found uh, somebody else who actually is with the company now, Casey Halverson. It was after lots of emailing, trying to get somebody else to help me out with this project. Uh, he's like, you know, I have, I have bald eagles that are near me in Seattle. I'm kind of curious where they go. I'd like to help you out with this project. And so he kind of specced out some of the, the newest generation of hardware. Um, I built it. He wrote the first generation of code, and before long, we are tracking golden eagles um, at 30-second res resolution. And, you know, CTT was born shortly after that. You know, I went to a conference and was showing this amazing data, and people were like, where can I get this device? And I'm like, well, I make them, <laughs> you know, and, and then so CTT kind of grew out of everyone wanting this new device. And so from there, the number of species that that we are tracking grew, or the number of tracking devices we had on the market grew. Um, and now we, we still track a lot of golden eagles, <laughs> but we track all different species across the globe. We pretty much tracked birds and other species in every continent, but one, Antarctica is, the, is, is our last place that, that we have yet to, to track anything. That, that will be changing this fall. Um, we have a project with penguins, but We've done, you know, birds and, and mammals and uh, amphibians, reptiles. Um, we've even tracked things like snails, um, you know, believe <laughs> it or not. It's pretty neat. And, you know, we've moved well beyond just, just cellular. So we, 
we now specialize in basically being able to develop the best kind of tracking devices for wildlife, whether it be you know satellite, cellular, um, radio, and uh, you, you know really we our core mission is to help biologists do what they do, and our core focus of our business is is really the conservation aspect of of helping people, and that's really how we how we've always run uh, CTT. We could do like a series of shows just on your technology <laughs> and um, what you've done. So I appreciate the overview. You know, something that I've always found really fascinating, and, and you know, there's probably not time to get into it in too much depth, but the engineering challenges of doing this, you know, and power budget's probably one of the things that drives the technology the most because to transmit further, to collect more data, to run longer, you need more power, which means more weight. And then that ends up being a limiting factor. So I find I find that really fascinating. And I know you have a very creative solution for some of that uh, that you call, I think, the Internet of Wildlife. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, within the Internet, Internet of Wildlife, I mean, like you mentioned, a very big species like an eagle, for instance, you know, they can carry a little bit larger device. The rule of thumb is you take an animal's weight and uh, you take 3% of that. And you don't want a device that is over that to be on any animal. It's actually quite a bit lighter than you might think. A typical backpack that you'd wear, or even your clothes that you're wearing, um, sometimes it's over 3% of, of our body weight. And so it's, a, it's not a lot of uh, weight for an animal, but when you're talking about something that's really small, for instance, like a songbird, you're limited to just sometimes only four tenths of a gram. Four tenths of a gram, you know, you can, you might be able to get a GPS on that now, uh, but try putting a battery that's going to collect enough GPS fixes to collect any useful information, um, and it, it's very limited. So to get around that, um, you know, using the bigger species that are able to carry a larger payload, um, they're essentially the other base stations. So they can actually, as they're flying around, they can actually interact, um, you know, not them physically. Well, they might sometimes, <laughs> depending on the species, but, uh, you know, but their tracking devices will talk to each other. And when that eagle flies um, back into, into cell reception uh, or into satellite reception, it can actually offload all the information from all the other animals that it came in contact with through its journey. So, um, and that's really useful when you have, you know, small species of of birds uh, that are migrating up into the Canadian Arctic. You have snowy owls that are up there and golden eagles that are up there. And all summer long, they could be collecting information that's, you know, well out of the reach of traditional base stations that our researchers will have. Uh, but those eagles can, you know, every time they, they're making flights over the forest, they're collecting information from black pole warblers and other species. And, you know, when they migrate back, they send all that information. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really making a network that all the animals in it are interacting in a, in, a, in a way that can get the most data from each animal for the researchers that are that are really trying to use it to, to conserve that wildlife. I think this is an excellent example of innovation because when I hear you say this, it seems so obvious, but I guarantee I wouldn't have thought of doing that. And, you know, that's I think those are the best innovations that come about. Before we move on, is there anything else that you want to say about CTT? Those are your audience that don't know where we're located. We're, we're in Cape May, New Jersey now. So, and we kind of strategically located here because of the bird migra migration. You know, we bring a lot of our experience 
from making tracking devices into the, you know, into the next thing, which is our next, you know, venture is, you know, really kind of making this consumer device. Um, we've, you know, mainly only historically worked with researchers, but we're kind of branching out. Yeah. And maybe before, I'm sorry, before we move on to that, uh, do you, are there any particular projects or success stories that I could point listeners to, um, I could link to? Sure. So probably one of the things that a lot of your listeners may uh, know about is Project Snowstorm. Uh, so Project Snowstorm uh, was started with Scott Weidensall and, and Dave Brinker, projectsnowstorm.org. And we're tracking hundreds of snowy owls now. And, you know, there's, you know, a whole research side, which are really trying to understand how these owls, when we have responsibility for them, when they're, you know, in the lower 48 primarily, you know, during the winter, there's lots of airports that are relocating them, um, you, you know, or shooting them um, as some airports do. Uh, not so much anymore, luckily. Part of the research is really understanding the habitat on the wintering grounds, um, looking at their movements in the winter, you know, really to help us conserve them when they're on their wintering grounds. And Project Snowstorm kind of, you know, grew out of it. it's a group of researchers that, that are all working towards that common goal. You know, we have uh, veterinarians, uh, re researchers, and educators that are all working together. So there's, you know, amazing uh, amount of information on online. So you can actually go on and, and see where the snowy owls have gone, track an individual snowy owl. Uh, during its migration, um, all that kind of kind of kind of stuff, and or just browse through the educational material. But that that is kind of one of the you know big projects that's you know was probably the most public facing one. But obviously, as far as conservation, I mean, we've been involved in in countless projects with endangered species. Um, you know, um, we do a lot of work with uh, you know California condors. We have a system that basically as a condor is flying towards a series of turbines, um, it will actually notify in real time the managers of those wind farms and say there's a condor approaching turbine, you know, whatever, you know, it will allow them to, to turn off that turbine before the condor gets very close. Um, so that's just, you know, one of the many things, uh, you know, in addition to just providing very high resolution data for managing and conserving these, these species. Yeah, those are both really compelling stories. And, you know, the snowy owls are notoriously an eruptive species, which there's always a little, little bit of mystery around that. And why? And why do they show up in such great numbers? And you're right, then they disrupt airports and air traffic and so forth. So, yeah, I'll definitely make sure to link to those things. So as far as your consumer product that you're, you've launched a Kickstarter for, and we'll talk a little bit about what, what a Kickstarter is here as well, uh, but Project Terra Scott, can you tell me a little bit about that? So my background is in bird education. I'm a photographer and, and uh, author. And so uh, I co-wrote the book, The Warbler Guide, and a number of apps for or several apps for bird identification and for teaching people. And I also teach photography and uh, bird identification to people. So I have a, a passion for birds. And so I found that, you know, Mike and I, a couple of years ago, we've been friends for a number of years here in Cape May, but a couple of years ago, we sort of ran into each other out birding in Cape May. And he said, you know, I'm working on this terror device. And I said, you know, we should talk about that. And so we started talking about it and we talked about it some more. And we realized that we really had a lot of ideas and goals in common and that this 
fairly simple technology could potentially have a huge impact on things. So that's Project Terra, and that's how Project Terra, Mike had sort of come up with this concept a number of years ago. I've been involved in helping bring it to life for the last two years. And it's a it's a kind of amazing project because it creates this sort of intersections between all these cool things. For example, it brings together individual interest in nature and even just benefiting from things like listening to natural sounds, which you know has been shown to reduce anxiety and, and sort of increase focus. It brings together the idea of individuals being able to learn about the nature in their yard together with this very broad idea for conservation as this tool that will allow us to track migration on a massive scale, which has never been done before. And also is amazing because it doesn't necessitate attaching anything to any birds. So up to this point in history, the main way people track birds is they have first banded them by, you know, they catch them in a net and they put a metal or plastic band on them and then the hope that it gets recaught someday. And the, the return on that is extraordinarily low, like in the one in the thousands. And then radio tracking, which is amazing, which Mike has been involved in now and a leader in for a long time and, you know, continues has been miniaturizing, but it still involves attaching a device to an animal. And so it takes, you know, you're only dealing with it individuals, single birds at a time. But now this concept where we're just listening to the animals as they fly over or as they sing in an area, that allows us to actually track all of them at the same time. So now we're actually looking at the the whole picture of all the birds that are moving simultaneously as opposed to using individuals as sort of representative for a group. So that's going to bring so much more detail to our ability to understand migration. And it's going to bring uh, hopefully a lot of build a community of people at the same time who are really interested or getting more interested in the nature around them. I mean, I, I know you probably know from your experiences birding and from my experiences birding, you know, you start to notice birds and then that initial notice starts to grow. And then there's this sort of increasing passion and interest for the natural world and not just birds then, but also nature around you and the animals and plants and weather and everything that's happening. And I think that Terra has the potential to open that door for a lot more people. And so we're really hoping to help one, build this conservation community and to build this new tool for conservation that we think could have a, a massive impact on how we understand the movement of animals. So to make it a little bit more tangible for me, what sorts of sensors do you have or plan to have in this device? Because I guess at this point it's what, prototyped or wh where are you at in the development process? We have a proto working prototype and, uh, or we've built a couple of prototypes, but we have a one main working prototype we're using right now. And what's really cool about this whole system is it's actually really simple. It's just two microphones and a radio receiver in a housing along with a Wi-Fi and, and Bluetooth. So what we're doing, what we're using this for is basically just you stick it in your yard. It comes in a little like six inch round. It's a, right now it's a little like sort of six and a half inch round device. Um, it has a couple of options for mounting. So you can attach a stake to it and put it in your garden, or you can use a mounting bracket and attach it to your wall or your deck. And you just put it outside and turn it on where there's gonna be a free app that comes with it. You connect to the app. And that app will let you stream sound inside. So now you can listen to the birds in your yard or the natural sounds in your yard when uh, the windows have to be closed because it's too cold or hot or the 
pollen counts too high. So it lets you enjoy that whenever you want. And so that's one great benefit, actually. We've been using that here, and it's really cool to be able to just sit and listen to the bird sounds outside and um, listen to the wind and rain at night or, you know, all the other natural sounds. And that's it. I mean, it's just this, this little plastic device that you stick outside that's weatherproof and, you know, designed for this and, and uh, let it do its thing. So it's a very simple object. But the amazing thing about it is then it actually creates all these connections. So not only will it listen, but it'll also send that data to a server, which will help us. And we're, we're working out the, all the details of this, but we'll then process that data and give you an ID for the birds that it's hearing. So you can go to bed at night, wake up the next morning. It said, it'll say, did you know that a hundred black pole warblers flew overhead last night, along with a black crown night heron and a great egret or whatever else has flown around? You know, birds migrate at night, so we often aren't aware of them. But if you're in the right place and time and you listen, you actually do hear them making sounds when they fly over. They, they're actually pretty, they're pretty yappy, these birds. They kind of can't shut up. And so they're constantly making these little noises when they fly. And that's one of the things we're going to leverage to help us understand what they're doing. That's a simple setup. Um, we are planning on having additional sensors that'll let you measure things that are going on in your yard, which may wind up being very useful for us too, because we can kind of measure these microhabitats and see how they affect how birds are using them and migration and so forth. In addition, and this is the hallmark of Terra, it's sort of like it benefits science, but it also benefits the person who buys one, is it'll tell you the moisture in your garden, you know, if you put a sensor in your garden, you can actually see what the moisture level is. If you need to water it, you can pick up weather and flooding data and all kinds of other stuff. So it's sort of a way to connect to the outside in a, in a total way. The last device that we actually just decided to do is we're going to have a solar module that you can add. So you can actually attach this solar device to your Terra and that way you don't have to have it plugged into anything. The basic Terra, you run a, a long flat data cable that powers it and brings data into the house. And you can actually run it under a closed window. So you don't have to, you know, we don't want people to have to drill holes in their walls and wire stuff. You know, we're trying to make that as simple as possible. So that's Terra. That's, that's, that's the concrete part of it. That sounds great. And especially the solar edition, I have a weather station that, that runs outside and the, the solar just makes it so convenient to, and simple to mount. Exactly. You mentioned you're in this migratory hotspot in Cape May and you've been using the prototype to listen. I, I have to imagine with a bunch of birders working on this project and listening to things that, that you're probably getting distracted a lot when, uh, <laughs> when it's migration season. <laughs> it can be very distracting. I mean, luckily we've actually been doing this for a long time here. I remember Mike coming over to my house, I don't know, what was it, 10 years ago? Yeah. And having a microphone building party where we had a bunch of empty five gallon buckets that we were pouring concrete into and then attaching a microphone in the bucket and setting it up and then putting it on different people's roofs so that we could pick up night flight calls. And that was sort of a, you could call that like a very early version of Terra. It was basically picking up all those sounds and you get a whole bunch of data that each night, the problem is that you have to go through it, you know? So right. you record eight hours of birds singing, you have to go through eight hours of birds and figure out what they are. And it takes a lot of expertise. So that's one of the things Terra is going to do is automate that so that we don't have to have a, a bird expert for every microphone. Yeah. I can see the benefit of of that and also the real-time feedback because it would be great like thinking about as a birder i would love to get a notification on my phone that 
hey, we just detected a Kirtland's warbler in your backyard. <laughs> oh, and like, so cool. real time, you could run out there and go see, like, <laughs> is it really here? <laughs> that's a totally something that we envision for this device. You know, I mean, the potential for it is really nearly limitless. I mean, for the for individuals, like it's this awesome thing that you could put in your yard and use in all these ways. And also for, you know, on the larger scale, like, for example, we were talking recently with someone about, you know, what if we use Terra in cities to measure migration movement each night? And when migration load gets high, we could actually turn off lights automatically in buildings. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we have over, a, we have, they estimate about a billion birds a year are killed by window strike in the United States. So, if we were able to reduce that even by a percentage, it would be a massive number of birds that we could save. So yeah, just so many applications. We're really excited. We I don't think we even really know, you know, everything that we're going to be able to do with this device until we make it and start using it. But I think that it's certainly going to be it's going to be big. I think that that's an excellent principle to hold on to as well. With good technology, there are often use cases that you never anticipated. And I don't know if you thought about this, but one that popped into my mind is you know during. COVID, there was a lot of press about how birdsong changed during lockdown yep. periods. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of directions you can go there in terms of measuring what birdsong or calls or any vocalization for that matter, mm -hmm. how they adapt to ambient noise. Because you're, I mm -hmm. assume that you're also going to detect the loud motorcycle that goes by on the street nearby or the airplane flying overhead or, or different things like that, too. Well, there's a couple of interesting things about that. One, we're planning on using some digital signal processing built in to actually potentially filter those sounds for you. So when you're inside, you can actually filter it to just the natural sounds that you want to hear as opposed to, like you're saying, the motorcycle or airplane. Another aspect to that is how we can actually use this to study bird songs like Right now, I actually have a lot of background in working with bird songs like Mike does. I worked on an app called Bird Genie, which actually is an app that has technology to identify bird song. And one of the things you find when you go through bird song archives is that it really has a lot to do with who was interested in recording what. So we don't have like a perfectly representative record of songs across the United States. We really have people who are like, did their graduate thesis on white crown sparrows in Alberta, and they went there and recorded a bunch of them. So you have these pockets where we have a lot of good recordings, but you don't have that uh, sort of across the whole US or even or the world, especially. So we think Terra can actually help a lot with that and create a database of sounds. We asked Mike and I were just sort of spitballing this, but we think that it's very possible we will record around 30 million hours of song in the first year that Terra is up. The first day that Terra is up, we will probably record more song than currently exists as in recordings. So I think we're talking about a massive amount of new data. And how about this? We can discover new species with Terra. So, it, you know, one of the things that's happening now, most new species that people discover as far as birds go, you don't see like a much different looking bird. It's a bird that looks like another bird in the area, but is actually a different species. So in the United States, we have uh, Swainson's and Bicknose thrush, for example, or Great Cheeked and Bicknose thrush look very similar, but they're actually different species. And you can tell from their song. And actually that's the first thing a lot of people look for when they're trying to find a new species is song. So if we're recording those songs out there and we kick up something that's not been heard before that doesn't make sense as far as what the population is there, then we can investigate that. There's just so many cool things we could potentially do with this and do it on a scale that's that's sort of never been done before. 
And we should also mention too, I mean, like you mentioned, you know, researcher being able to do background noise. I mean, even though we're filtering it out for the normal user, you know, there could be all kinds of algorithms that could automatically run, like for instance, breeding bird surveys, you know, rely a lot on point count data. And somebody will go out and listen to the birds that are all singing, record what those species are for a certain amount of time. That could be, you know, two minutes, for instance. The biggest problem with that is, is if you're a, a point counter and, and you're going out listening to songs, you go out on, on your route. And some of those point counts are done at 7 a.m. And others are done at 9.30 in the morning, right? And then you, t- you tend to stop by like 10 o'clock when it starts getting warm. But there is a differences in how birds vocalize depending on the time of day. So, so the, the detection probabilities of detecting certain species diminish over time. Well, you know, recording two minutes of audio at, on every terror device across, you know, at 7 a.m. across the globe at seven o'clock everywhere, you know, wherever that device is, it will record a couple minutes of audio that we could then analyze what birds were singing right then. We could even look at, you know, okay, let's take a snippet of that and look at the background noise. I think the number of projects uh, are, could be, I mean, it could be endless. You know, the number of, the treasure trove of projects that, you know, graduate students and other researchers could think of to do with all the recorded bird audio or not just birds. I mean, it could be frog data, it could be, you know, crickets or cicadas, you know, looking at all these different things and analyzing them however, you know, we need to. Um, And that's, it's really exciting. And we can see effects of noise pollution on wildlife. We can look at trends in song changing over time. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of really cool stuff we can do. And we haven't even mentioned the radio receiver actually, because these devices will pick up any radio tracked bird that we have. So there's thousands of those birds out there. So if one of these golden eagles with a backpack on it that Mike's talking about goes near your house, it'll actually pick that that bird up. So we're actually helping researchers by expanding their sort of network of receivers potentially exponentially. So we're talking about like a much wider net for studying the birds that are existing birds that have uh, radio trackers on them. The one huge reason why that's important is this. Think about where researchers have, and this is particularly useful for small species. Researchers have, like in Cape May, we have a station at the point. There's a lot more presence here, but you know, guess where there's not a radio re- receiver in somebody's backyard in Pennsylvania or somebody's yard in, you know, outside of New York City or anywhere like that. But guess what? All these habitats that birds are using during migration, they use that habitat, they move on. You know, how that piece of habitat fits into a migration, being able to analyze all these other pieces of information about what habitats are birds using during migration? What habitats are they spending the most time in? You may have a, some terror user is making tons and tons of improvements in, in their yard uh, with wildlife habitat. And, you know, so they may have a terror device, they may put it out there and they may not even be interested in birds. They may just want to want to listen to a waterfowl in Brazil or they're interested in, in wildlife, right? But they get interested enough that like, wow, you know, I can put a wildlife garden in and create a better habitat. And over time, 
their yard is becoming better for birds. And there's going to be this whole really cool thing happening where, you know, researchers are going to be able to learn something about the habitats and people's yards that are attracting birds, especially as, you know, like it or not, I mean, you know, development is happening uh, at a very, very quick pace across most of the United States. And so understanding more how they're using these microhabitats in people's yards is very important. And that's something that I find really important as well. I, I did a little bit of math. I, I've said that, apologies to my listeners because I've said this like in almost every episode. But uh, when you add up the amount of turf grass in the United States, it's roughly the same size as uh, somewhere between Florida and Nevada wow. in terms of space. And when you think about it, most of that is severely degraded habitat. It's a monoculture with a lot of chemicals applied. It's important. You know, it's important to highlight and provide positive reinforcement for people to improve their own personal property habitat. Yeah, grass is biological concrete. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's a great book uh, called Bringing Nature Home, which is about planting native plants in your yards and how if everyone does that to a degree, we can actually create a mass amount of habitat for, for animals. So Tara could be a part of that too. One thing that Mike mentioned that I wanted to talk about was actually you could listen to a waterfall in Brazil. And one of the other really cool things we're planning on doing with Tara is actually having curated sites around the world. So if you want to listen to a watering hole in Africa, or if you want to change your scenery to the uh, jungle in Panama or waterfall in Brazil and want to have that as your audio environment, you can do that and you'll be able to live stream it through our app. So that's actually a nice benefit for people who live in the city. I lived in, in Brooklyn for a number of years before I moved to Cape May. And I actually learned how to bird in Brooklyn because believe it or not, there's great birding in Prospect Park and Central Park. I'm sure your listeners probably know that, but it surprises a lot of people. And the ability to bring in that sort of refreshing audio environment into your home when you're in the middle of the city and you've got all these city noises going all the time or maybe even listen say to prospect park while you're in your apartment in park slope or you know wherever you are in the city and sort of have a connection to that is another way that we think we're really going to help people feel more connected because really terror is about community it's about connecting people to each other and connecting people to the environment and creating a sense of stewardship in that community that we think will, um, in addition to the science we're doing here, I think there's also a community of people we're building that hopefully will be more involved in that stewardship of nature and could potentially help push our values towards preserving that nature. Something that I've found really interesting to learn about in recent years, you mentioned the importance for your own health and you know being exposed to nature and listening to nature sound seeing nature it's been interesting to see the scientific data come in to back that up mm -hmm. biomarkers like stress hormone biomarkers your pulse rates and you know things like that when you're when you're exposed to nature and how just how much better it is for you yeah i just read an article that was compiled i think 30 something different studies about Ooh. that and and it's very concrete, the evidence that they're showing that listening to natural sounds, even for an hour a day or less, can really make a difference in your mental state. And, and that makes sense because we have, until the last, say, 100 years, we have a, a very long biological history of being listening to those sounds and being connected to them. So we're sort of built for that. And I think it taps into a part of our brain that's actually pretty developed. 
The other thing that um, I think is really cool about this is that we're going to be bringing, so you can use curated sound, you can listen to natural sounds in your yard, but we're also going to be educating people about the sounds that they're hearing. So you're not only going to be able to listen to that sound, but also learn about what you're hearing. It'll help you identify the animals and birds you're hearing. We also want to have people learn about that. So we're going to give them information about it in the app. Like, do you want to learn more about golden eagles or do you want to know a way that you can improve your habitat if you want to encourage thrushes in your yard, or if you want to attract chickadees to your feet, or if you want to bring, you know, so all those kinds of ways of improving your habitat too, are things that we want to encourage and, and create for people. Yeah. I think that's super important in an app to provide some sort of positive feedback, whether it's visualizations of, you know, species counts over time or helping people ascend that ladder of caring for the environment in small steps like that. I think that's, that's very cool to hear about. Yeah. Uh, yeah I did have a, a, a question going back to the actually having a receiver to pick up the transmitters that are already established. Is that going to be, does that work only with CTT technology or does it also work with other technologies that are out there? Currently it just works with our tracking devices. However, you know, there could be, you know, a lot of the stuff that we make now for, for instance, for the MODIS network, um, it actually picks up everything that's being used in the field. So it could do that. The problem is, you know, for these initial devices is that's, you know, a lot of extra technology and, and power uh, being used to try to detect everything that's out there. But you're going to detect a huge proportion of what's out there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that would be what an entirely separate receiver you'd have to put in and power with microphones and so forth. Yeah, I mean it's we we'd have to work on that because yeah, there's as as you might imagine, there's you know there's lots of different protocols for the radio signals. You know, right now we're going to be using two of those to pick up the signals, um, and it's going to pick up you know birds and even probably uh, in the very near future it could be picking up monarchs and other uh, insects as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to be able to run every protocol within wildlife technologies is very difficult on a smaller consumer device. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think that, you know, we have a lot of plans for accessories and so on for Terra, and we certainly could see people kind of geeking out on this stuff too. So I wouldn't rule out us, you know, investigating stuff like that in the future and applying it to Terra. And part of that is how much we raise on Kickstarter and how much our initial funding is, because the more we have, the more we can invest into additional accessories, additional features, and so on, that we can really bring this to life uh, as quickly as possible and to really move forward. Because Tara, you know, just this initial device is really just the beginning. There's a, there's so much to do and and expand into that we're we're just really it's just a question of time and money. It sounds really like an exciting time right now. I mean, just as we've been talking, the ideas have been coursing through my brain about like oh, how, <laughs> how great would it be to have a portable Terra when I go out on backpacking trips and right. uh, or just short hikes or whatever the case might be. But yeah, yeah. right. You can only do so much when you start. We're going to make a, a hat-based Terra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I do want to talk about why the Kickstarter is so important, but one more thing before we get there. You touched on the idea of nocturnal flight calls, and I was looking into my own sort of homebrew setup, like you were talking about before, where you use the bucket and you know maybe you put some 
plastic wrap over top to waterproof it and, you know, things like that. And uh, I was planning to do that actually this coming season. So out here in the West, migration is very different than migration in the East. It's a lot more diffuse and spread out, but I also think there's a lot to learn. So when it comes to nocturnal flight calls, what, what makes them like, are they, is every bird have a unique separate call or how accurate is the distinguishing of those calls? I'm curious what your experiences have been. It's pretty much a hundred percent. I mean, there's, there are a few flight calls that are, are very close to each other, but just like bird song, flight calls are actually remarkably consistent and unique. So really, if you're out there listening, you can pretty much with a pretty great accuracy, identify most of the things that are flying over. Is that? Well, it's true that, you know, the flight calls by, you know, given by species are all different. Uh, So I worked for years doing analysis of flight calls and documenting the flight calls, especially in the Western United States. Andrew Farnsworth and I spent the better part of uh, several years actually documenting all the flight calls of of Western species in the U.S. The algorithms that you could use to pick those up are constantly evolving. And, you know, certainly in the last 10 years, we've gotten a lot better at going from you know, oh, that's a, a thrush to that's a Swainson's thrush or that's a Zeep type call. And, you know, that might be foreign to some some people, but I'd, I'd encourage if you're interested in flight calls too. Um, so when, when we talk about Zeeps, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, there's a oldbird.org is a site you want to go to to kind of learn more about, about flight calls. Bill Evans, you know, pretty much, you know, he's what got in, originally got me interested in flight calls when I was a boy, I grew up in upstate New York and uh, used to switch the VCR tapes <laughs> um, and at the banding station we worked at because we had a microphone up on the roof. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> it seems like a long time ago now. And if you're young enough, you don't know what a VCR tape is. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> but it is kind of kind of crazy. The birds that make like Zeep type calls and all that, which are just basically modulated calls, there's there's a lot of species that are very similar. So you have black pole warblers and bay-breasted warblers that make a zeep type call or, or black burnian type war, warblers. They're very basically very modulated calls. They sound very similar. And to a lot of people, they may sound the same. Um, they're very, very short calls. But when you import that into the right analysis tools, you can actually tease them apart. And so it's a good question, though. So you know, at, you know, what is Terra going to actually be able to do right out of out of the box? And we're still trying to look at the challenges of can it identify everything 100%. There's no no way right now. You know, however, as the Terra community builds and as the database of of calls gets larger, um, the accuracy is always going to be improving. It's going to be kind of like you know having any technology one update. And it does something it didn't do yesterday. The technology on it will constantly get better. The number of calls it can identify, the number of songs it can identify. Like right now, we're only planning on, uh, you know, in the initial release, there's going to be, you know, the United States, Canada, but then very shortly thereafter, it's going to be, you know, the UK and, and other songs are going to start going on and, and look at, depending on what countries are added on, you know, those are going to be, but, but flight calls, they're a bit harder for a lot of reasons. I think you're, I mean, I think Mike might be 
I mean, he's an expert at this, but I think he might be overstating how difficult it is to separate these things. Because I've actually studied warblers for, you know, I, I co-wrote a book about warblers and night flight calls. And so if you go out there and listen, like, for example, a Blackburnian flight call sounds like this. And then a bay pole might sound like this. So you can see they're like completely different sounds. <laughs> so, yeah, he's, he's right. They can be really tricky. And I think having sonograms and be able to look at stuff and then analyzing with a computer can make it a lot easier. Right. And I think also just to reiterate Mike's point, I think that as we collect part of the problem that, that we dealt with when I was working on a bird song identification app was the amount of data that's out there. Because if you don't have a big enough data set, it makes it really hard to allow to use machine learning and to apply those principles. So by putting Terra out there and collecting data, it'll actually be this positive feedback loop. So the more data we collect, the faster we'll be able to improve the algorithms. And I think that in some ways it'll be sort of a, a self-learning um, process. So yeah, the more people out there that are using it, the faster that will go. Yeah, I think I think there's an illusion of depth of data. When you start looking at Xenocanto or Macaulay Library, it seems like a lot, but really in the grand scheme, it's it's not much. And some of it really is specific to, as you said before, individual researchers. So there's there's almost like a, a bias in the data at that point. There is, yeah. yeah. It's sort of, and you know, if you look for number of photos of yellow warblers versus number of yellow warbler recordings, the photos outnumber the recordings by like, 20 to one. Yeah, we're still, and that's part of the reason why photo ID has actually advanced so quickly. I think now in the last few years with, you know, with apps like Merlin, where it can actually do an amazingly good job or iNaturalist, where they do this amazing good job of IDing things visually. Part of it is just the volume of data they have to work with is, is very great. So we think Terra will help, help change that. Yeah. And if you remember, so some of the, some of your uh, listeners might actually remember when iNaturalist was first released, it had all these grand ideas of identifying plants and animals and, and, and all that. But when you use it, it's like, well, that's not right. Oh, that's not right. And then it's like, now it's like, you use it and you're like, oh my God, I got that obscure bug that's on my windowsill right now. It it's knows, like, how did you know, that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I can't believe it got that. Yeah. And you know, the reason why is because there's tons and tons of users out there. Now there's people that are on the back end that are, that are utilizing all all those Im images to create a better identification tool and same thing is going to happen with with flight calls and you know we can even tease out things like uh, for instance there's there's a paper that i wrote uh, you know quite a number of years ago now that looked at differences in the variation of flight calls and we were actually able even to tease out male and female and adult and young magnolia warblers just from their flight call and, you know, that's just because we had a large enough data set to be able to look at that. There's a lot of things that we're going to learn. Um, I mean, this is, uh, this is a really exciting time. You know, flight calls, you know, it, it's, it's funny. The uh, um, John Fitzpatrick uh, at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, uh, when, when Andy Farnsworth was de defending his dissertation, um, he made a joke basically like, you know, I don't know why you want to study these small insignificant notes. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a joke because it's like in this tiny, tiny little, little note, there's so much information embedded when you, when you really look at the variation inside of every little thing, uh, you know, little note, we're holding the key to unlocking some great mysteries. You know, we're hoping Tara will do that for us. So let's talk about the Kickstarter then. And yes, 
What is a Kickstarter? Why is it so important for the success of Terra? So a Kickstarter is a way to make a project come to life. So it's a way to community fund a project. And basically it's a pre-ordering system. So what you're doing by going to Kickstarter is you'll see there's a bunch of rewards that you can purchase or agree to. And so you might say, okay, I want to buy a Terra. And we do have um, sort of early bird specials and stuff. So you'll actually get a discount off the um, retail price when we eventually release it. But you go there and say, okay, I commit to buying one Terra. And that adds that amount to our fund. Then if we get enough people to do that and we reach our base goal, which you have to have a, a base goal of Kickstarter, if we reach that goal, we then get that money and then we make Terra and then we ship it out to everybody. So it's not a, it's, you're not going to be going to, to Kickstarter to buy one this second. What you're going to be doing is agreeing to buy one when it's created, which will be, we, our timeline right now is about a year. So I think that's a, a reasonable timeline given CTT's expertise in manufacturing and, and all our different skill sets that we have. We sort of have everything lined up. So I think we can do that very effectively. Yeah. I should probably back up too, to sure. just, to, just so that everyone understands. So basically when you go to Kickstarter, there's a lot of ideas that people have and, you know, you might have enough money to make a prototype, right? But there's a huge difference when you work in the industry from a prototype stage where you have something that works to something that actually could be used in somebody's backyard um, that you can actually go to production with. That's a, totally different thing. And it takes a lot of money and resources to get from a prototype stage and a good idea to something that you could actually ship to somebody and put in their backyard. So that year of development is basically taking a prototype. And that's why it's really important. That goal that's on there is kind of the lowest goal that we could actually make it a reality. Um, it doesn't mean that that with that amount of money, it's that's going to be the best amount of money. It means that that's a minimum we can do it. So, you know, if we raise $270,000, we can bring that idea to a reality. But if we raise a million dollars, then that means we're going to be able to do a lot of other things that we wouldn't have been able to do. It, that might come in, you know, year two. But if we are able to raise more funds, that means we have more money to spend on developing a better product. So there's you're basically everyone that, that becomes a backer in the kickstarting world. There are people that are really helping an idea go to the next level and bring it to a reality. You know, it's, it, it's exciting because you're basically investing in, in helping a product that you believe in succeed. I think Kickstarter is so perfect for Terra because it's about building a community of backers, a community of people who believe in your idea. And that's what Terra is doing. It's not just Terra is not just a scientific tool that we're saying, well, we, we need a certain amount of money. We're going to build this tool and stick it out there and, and use it to, to attract birds. It's actually we want people to be involved in helping us build this tool and get involved themselves and be connected to the processes that this tool is out there to try and track. So we want you to get connected to nature we want you to be able to relax and listen to sounds in your in the background or you know learn more about the birds in your yard and so on or that stuff that's going on in your area or on a nationwide level we want you to learn all that stuff and be part of that community and kickstarter's community funding system so it's sort of a, a perfect fit for us i think when is the deadline for your kickstarter from today, I'm not sure when this is going to release, but from today, we have about 29 days left in our Kickstarter. It's a 35-day campaign. We've already raised about $100,000, so we're about 
a little more than a third of the way to our goal of 266,000. That again, like Mike said, is the minimum amount we need to bring this to life. If we bring in more than that, we certainly will be able to create a, a more robust product when it first is released. So for example, we'll be able to work with better app developers. We'll be able to uh, maybe do some more refinement to the design. We'll be able to make sure that, you know, maybe we'll be able to develop some more accessories um, for the initial launch. So, um, you know, the more money we can bring into the community, the better, but that base 266 is the, is the number we're shooting for. And we're, we're on target, but we're, we, uh, we certainly aren't aren't home yet, and Kickstarter, by the way, is all or nothing. So if we make two sixty five and our goal is two sixty six, we get nothing, and the project you know gets turned off, and we'll have to we'll have to start over again. So it's very important for us to get to that number. Well, I'll make I'll do my best to get this out there as soon as possible to hopefully help. <laughs> Great, uh, I think you've, excellent. You've convinced me that uh, I'll be one of your Kickstarter backers. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And. You know, you've been very gracious with your time, given everything you have going on right now. So uh, before we wrap up, you know, where else can we go to find more information about this? Where can we find out more information about you? How can we track your upcoming projects? Our company website, um, for those that are inter- interested, is uh, uh, CellularTrackingTechnologies.com. Uh, uh, CellTrackTech.com is, is, you can kind of get all the information on tracking devices and all that kind of stuff. As far as uh, Tara goes and the kickstarting, that's all TaraListens.com. Yeah, TaraListens.com is our website. And the Kickstarter is actually, if you go to kickstarter.com and look up Terra Project, but um, we can also give you a link, hopefully, so your listeners can click directly there Mm -hmm. and, and get to it. Yeah, definitely. I'll make sure all the links, you know, everything we talked about will be in the show notes and I'll prominently feature the link to the, to the Kickstarter as well to make it super simple. Awesome. And we also, of course, have Facebook and Instagram and yep. Twitter, social media stuff. And if you just look up Terra Project on any of those, you know, anywhere there, it'll uh, take you there. If you can't find it on Kickstarter, go to Terra Listens, our website, and we have links there too. So so we're, we're trying to make it as easy as possible. All right, Scott, Mike, anything else you'd like to say before we sign off for today? No, just a huge thank you for... Yeah. Uh, uh, having us on your podcast and allowing us to share this project with people, you know, we're, we're so excited to be building this community and it's, it's important to get the word out. So it's, it's really great that you agreed to have us on. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. One last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. 
The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.